Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild Podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining me. Another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, I have two guests joining me. One is my friend, John Lemus, who is a self-advocate here in Spokane. Um, John works at, actually, you have a lot of different hats, and I'm going to have you introduce yourself and talk about a lot of those different hats. And then also one of his very close friends, Katrina Boyk, who also happens to be the new director of community engagement at SOAR Behavior Services. So thank you guys for joining me. Today, Katrina, you're not wearing necessarily your SOAR hat. You're actually here as just an advocate because our topic today is talking about ABA and um, kind of putting, let's just be real, there's a lot of controversies right now when it comes to ABA, which stands for Applied Behavioral Analysis. And so amongst our autism community, there are those that very much um, believe in the benefits and the science behind ABA and how it's applied to our loved ones that have disabilities, specifically autism, but other disabilities as well. And then there are those specifically self-advocates who are very much opposed to ABA because of just negative experiences that they've had perhaps in their earlier life. So you guys are here, John, as a self-advocate to talk a little bit about that, because while be it, you are a self-advocate, you are a person with autism, you actually have very positive things to say about ABA, and you actually get a lot of criticism and negativity amongst your, your, your peers, correct? I I do. Yes. Okay. Well, before we get to that, John, because I love your resume and I love people to know all of the amazing things that you're doing, would you mind introducing yourself and some of the work that you do here in Spokane? Sure. So my name is John Lemus. I've lived in Spokane pretty much my whole life. Right now, I am the advocacy coordinator for At Work, where we take on several different policy issues. Right now, we're really focusing hard on subminimum wage and ending that. And you uh, which, have been super instrumental in current legislation that's to yeah. end subminimum wage. So thank you very much for doing that. I think I speak for all of us by thanking you for being part of that hard work. So yeah. yeah, that was a really exciting thing to get that passed at the state level. And then my second job, I work for the University of Washington Center for Human Development and Disability. It's kind of Ooh, a that sounds interesting. On their autism echo project. And so that's being involved with that and being a LEND alumni is how I really started learning what ABA is and how it works and the ins and outs and have gotten to observe a few sessions and actually see what it's like. So wonderful. Now, Katrina, your friend Katrina is also joining us as an advocate. Now, Katrina, while you're currently at SOAR, you have worked amongst the disability community for a long time, correct? So you want to give us just kind of a little background of of why is it that you landed and worked so um, tightly with the disability community? Yeah, absolutely. So I started actually as a paraeducator at East Valley High School, and that's when I really fell in love with this community. Since then, I've worked for 
couple supported employment agencies in Spokane. I worked for Enzo. I helped start the At Work branch in Spokane. I've worked for Compass Career Solutions and the Arc of Spokane as well. So I just absolutely love this community because I am someone who struggles a lot with mental health. And I've found a lot of peace with this community, a lot of understanding, a lot less judgment than I might feel with other people. So I just, when I was working as a paraeducator, it was really the first time where I felt like I could be myself and I could communicate with people without having a lot of anxiety. And so since then, I've gotten actually help and stuff for some of my anxiety and depression, but that was really what made me fall in love with this community. Just just how happy everyone is and the lack of judgment. And I just felt like I could actually be myself. So I've been an advocate for over five years now. Well, thank you for doing that. You know, it turns out we use one word that you might hear during this podcast is neurodivergent. It's a term that actually, when we're talking about this in this, in our population, uh, that is a term that you may, people may start hearing more and more. John, would you mind describing how would you as a self-advocate describe the neurodivergent population and, and that term specifically how it applies to people that are quote unquote neurotypical versus neurodivergent? I think that I would describe it as just like a difference in thought, really. Like a lot of people who are on the spectrum are considered to be neurodivergent. Yes, and, it's not uh, broken or wrong yeah, yeah, or, right, or less. Right. It's yeah. that, you know, I have to accomplish certain tasks yeah. differently right. in order to get it done. And it's very much right. the same way in different right. in different realms. So. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, actually, my staff, because they know that I have dyslexia, they know that there are some little things that stump me at times. And so they will always say, oh, oh, Holly probably had a problem because sixes and nines are not my friends. And so when I have issues in that regard, it's kind of like, oh, no big deal. And so there are slight accommodations that I need in order to be able to be successful. They're not wrong. They're not necessarily even special. Um, They're just different accommodations that people need in order to achieve, you know, success. And that is all individualized for all people. So that is a term that you might hear throughout this podcast. But first and foremost, we kind of wanted to dive into the history of ABA because again, ABA, gosh, the, oh, and actually listeners, you will hear my stepson Cooper in the background because he, as a self-advocate, is also participating in this podcast in his own way, which is just, he might repeat some of the words that he hears us say. So if you're hearing kind of a little bit of an echo, that's actually Cooper participating because he is ASD level three and is significantly impacted when it comes to communication. So a lot of his communication style is just repeating what he hears a lot of us say. So if you hear that, I apologize, but that is Cooper listening to us and participating in his own way. So the history of ABA, well, the science of ABA is the one that has been around the longest in terms of helping to support individuals with autism and other disabilities. So we thought it would be helpful to talk about the history and where ABA came from. So John, are you able to help me with that? Sure. Well, ABA was created by a guy named Ivor Lovash. And Lovash had some pretty unusual methods. He would like smack children on the thigh when he felt they were non-compliant with therapy. 
And so many of his methods are no longer used in today's practice. And that's how ABA just got kind of it troubled history. Flash forward to now, and it is a science that has benefited many people. I wish that ABA had been as hot as it was now um, back when I was in middle school. I mean, it would have helped me. It would have helped my parents gain some better coping skills, which would have helped with a lot less childhood trauma on my end. And so I don't think that a lot of people really think about that is that it is a tool that is designed uh, for people to function at their highest and best and to help them be more independent. That is true. I'm going to ask a true or false question. Now, it has been said that ABA's original early on history was a lot of the principles that they used and developed early, early, early on were actually derived from animal training. So trainings, tactics that they would use to train animals. Is that true or not? I I can't answer that question. Yeah, I have done a little bit of research and it does appear from the research that we've done that actually, technically speaking, that is true. And so we can't say that that's false. And that's because that's a lot of times in forums where we're talking about therapy interventions, you hear a lot that, oh, that's animal behavior training. And so I researched it because I was like, I'm going to prove this wrong. And then I was like, oh, well, technically, yes, some of those strategies were actually um, derived from that. But with that being said, I have actually said, so, you know, I'm the parent of many kids. And when we talk about ABA and some of the controversy around it, I always like to point out because, you know, not all parents, I'm going to be honest with you. When Isaac was little, I did not like ABA because I had done my research and it just seemed very, oh, I don't know, just like clinical and, and kind of, if I'm being honest, like dog training with the positive reinforcements and the different things like that. So we opted with Isaac, we did um, floor time, DIR floor time. Are you familiar with that intervention, John? I'm not, no. Okay. Well, it's kind of the counterpart to ABA. And so really the principle behind this is that um, it's a little, it's more social and you're following the natural interest of the child in order to get more natural social interactions built around things that they love. And so that was the therapy interventions that we did with my son, Isaac, when he was little. And so we would have a provider come in, he would observe our interactions and how we were playing and then coach me on ways that I could extend some of those interactions to get more reciprocal communication and his interest in wanting to socially connect with me or his siblings through those natural interests. And so the funny thing about this is that, you know, DIR and ABA have been actually adversarial just in terms of research and the ABA community likes to say, well, it's not scientific, you know, it's not scientifically proven. ABA has been around for eons and has all this really great research behind it. But interestingly enough, like you, John, I have sat in on a lot of therapy services, uh, specifically ABA and floor time. And the funny thing about this is when I hear arguments from the DIR camp of professionals and I hear arguments about the ABA camp of professionals that if you really watch a really good ABA provider and you watch a really good floor time provider, I can't tell you which one is different. 
And that's the interesting thing about it, because really good therapy is just good therapy interventions, right? It's very relational. It's very individualized. No one wants to do something that's not based around their natural interests, right? So also too, when I think of ABA, if we're being honest, I'm the mother of many, parenting in and of itself is ABA. Because I have to, as a parent, motivate my children, and there are consequences for certain behaviors that are just not acceptable. So parenting in and of itself, if you say that it's not built on the principle of ABA, I would argue with that. Because really, how do we as parents raise our children to be responsible, engaging citizens of our community, right? I mean, do you agree with that, John? What's your feeling on that? I I, I do agree with that. I think that And and like I said earlier, is that like ABA is a tool for everybody. Like, I think that the concepts of it are used in several different settings and they can apply to them. And and, then I think that, again, it just helps people become more independent and gain some of those executive functioning skills that they need in order to continue that independence. So I agree. I, I think that's a great analogy. Yeah. Katrina, how has your perception always been positive with ABA or is it something that you have, it's a, it's a concept or relationship with ABA that has like evolved over time because you're not, I mean, you don't have siblings or loved ones necessarily that you were raised with, with ABA so that you have, you know, you were raised around it or at least around the concept. So kind of how, what's your evolution of as just an, a community advocate for us? Like how, how, how's your feeling been about ABA? Yeah. So I think I have a coming from pretty good perspective because I've heard both sides and I didn't really make a judgment until two years ago. So for the longest time, yeah, I just kind of listened to both sides and I didn't have any judgment on it. I just thought, okay, it's just another therapy. It's like speech pathology. It's just another type of therapy, but yeah, really within the last year to two years is when I've just you know, kind of nosedived into all of the ABA therapy. And I have just been incredibly impressed. And I've really delved into the controversies and I listen to ABA podcasts and I I find it very, very fascinating. So now, yes, I am a diehard ABA fan, but I'm not close-minded. And I think that's really, really important because I have lots of conversations with people who are you know, one-sided and they're not willing to learn or hear the other side. And I've tried with everything I do to really see both perspectives and then make an educated decision on my own thoughts. So yeah. I agree. I'm in that same camp for you because, you know, I'm the executive director of the Isaac Foundation. So I come to this with the passion because I'm a mother who has had children with autism. So my son, Caleb, who's 13, also is touched by autism. I love it when, John, you refer to high level autism instead of high functioning. So there's a lot of different terminology out there. And, and that's the thing is, is that for Caleb's therapy intervention, um, in fact, actually, I just recorded a podcast with Caleb and I was asking him how he felt about the different therapy interventions that he's done over the course of his life, because he admitted in his podcast that he doesn't actually have a conscious memory of never not being in some form of therapy interventions. And I, it was really important because again, we're wanting 
you know, at the Isaac Foundation, I support all people in their decisions because what works for one family is not going to work for another family. What works for one self-advocate is not going to work for another self-advocate. Where I do take offense when, you know, my biggest issue with um, some of our self-advocates who are very adversarial when it comes to ABA is that it's implied that by signing your child up for ABA and, you know, like utilizing those services, that it's actually considered child abuse and that we should just let them be themselves and that, you know, these are who organically how they present and we should celebrate that and not use ABA principles to change those individual differences of all about that argument that ABA actually then is a form of abuse and that we really need to honor all individual differences of all people. And so what will be, will be. So I would first say that self-advocates have zero grounds to tell families what services they should be receiving uh, whatsoever. Like that is not a place of a self-advocate. And I have yelled at several self-advocates who have left parents calling me in tears um and i'm like this is not okay so no i do not believe that aba is child abuse there are self-advocates who have even gone far enough to call it conversion therapy yes and that is just just not true we all have areas in our life that we need to work on and and we work on those to become better humans and i think one of the things i will say and I want to make sure that it's understood that I'm not referring to behaviors (laughs) like rocking or that's not even a behavior. Like I'm not referring to like self-soothing and other things that self-advocate or autistics need to do to, to comfort themselves. Mm -hmm. Like there, I know parents who think that is a behavior and it's not. Like, that's just something that they need to do to self-regulate. And um, experience their environment. So you yeah. guys can see my son, stepson, Cooper, who's sitting here behind me. Mm-hmm. And you can see he has a lot of big movements. But um, some of it, I think early on, probably was self-stimming behavior. But now that's how he enjoys the world and how yeah. he, it's yeah. really, I don't think, stimulating behavior anymore, other than it's how he expresses, um, you know, like, and interacts right. in his commu- in his yeah. environment. So. I think it's very organic. So this is just, this is us. If I, if I could use that term yeah, it's like us, yeah. and this is him and we celebrate mm-hmm. that. We don't hide it. We don't try and alter that. You know, I do at times ask him to try and like, you know, use an inside voice or we call it the movie where we're not actually mm-hmm. using our mouth, but you know, we're working on those things. But yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, it's important that self-advocate or autistics be able to have those opportunities to self-regulate. I think that a lot of autistics who oppose ABA have just kind of jumped on the ACN train. They don't, they don't really understand a lot about it and how it works. And many of them have not even gone through ABA themselves. I remembered reading an article about a young kid somewhere in Europe who had like run into traffic to avoid an ABA session. And after that, self-advocates or autistics just globbed onto that and just used it as ammunition to fuel the fire. You know, one of the things I talk about, I got to do a webinar to the Washington Association of Behavior Analysts with my friend, uh, Dr. Katie Bateman. She's amazing. And BCBA, I think she has her doctorate in BCBA. 
or BCBAD. And, you know, on that webinar, I said it's kind of a shitty deal, but the providers now are stuck paying for the sons of their forefathers, right? Oh, agreed. And so it's up to the providers now to meet those autistics where they are, have those conversations, talk about how the field's changed, and then try and pave that way forward. So, yeah, it, you know, kind of sucks that providers are having to take the time out of their practice to do those efforts. But I think that that ultimately is what is going to bring some of that division to a close. Yeah. Um, And so I've I've committed my efforts to help WABA and other providers kind of have those discussions within their communities and help people understand the science better. Yeah. And I agree with that, John. And, you know, one of the things that I like about you is, is that you actually do really hard. You, you try hard to understand things from different perspectives. And sometimes you are really opposed to something. And then after talking to more people or researching it or contemplating and sitting with it with a while, you come back and will very publicly say, you know what, I I changed my mind. And now I'm seeing it from a different perspective. And so one of the biggest challenges that I see is, is that there's not as many people that are like you, John, that are willing to put in the work to understand it from a different perspective. When we're talking about autistics, I got to be honest with you. Um, when I interviewed my son, Caleb, we were talking about terminology and language when we were using it to describe people. And do you know, um, you know, it has been decided that autistics like being referred to as autistics and my son, Caleb hates it. He does not like it at all. I said, why don't you like it? He says, I just don't, I can't describe it. Um, I just don't like it. Well, what do you prefer? He says other words like, you know, I'm Caleb and yeah, I have autism, but I don't like autistic that's just a term and so it's one of those things where you know who gets to then decide what the overall appropriate terminology is for some of these things because there are some that feel really strongly about language that we should all be utilizing and be sensitive to but yet there are people within your own community that don't like some of the decisions that were made and what the terminology and kind of the shift has been so how does how does that work john So I was just training our staff on this this morning um, for our new hires. And um, we talk about the difference in language and it really being the individual's choice. So um, a lot of people are proponents of people first language. Um, And then there's the identity first language, which you're referring to. And what How I really equate identity first language to is disability pride. Um, Like I'm autistic and I'm proud. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, a lot of, and this goes back to some of the self-advocates who oppose ABA, they feel like that is trying to take away their identity as an individual with autism. Yeah. So what I tell our staff is that if an individual is non-speaking and cannot otherwise, you know, let you know how they feel, use people first language because that tends to be the most respectful. However, most people who support identity first language will be very vocal about telling you that that is their their preferred method of um, their identity. And so I, I really just leave it up 
to the individual and what their communication and preferences are. So now that I've had you make that point, John, then it really kind of, if we take that concept and that's something that people in our community can like wrap their head around and respect the fact that people should have a choice about language, then why is it so difficult for our community to then allow people to choose different interventions like ABA as a form of therapy for our kids? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. And so that's where I I really struggle because it's like, if we can have a lot of compassion and respect about, you know, like what language do you prefer? How do you like to be referenced? Why is it that then there's very little tolerance and acceptance when we choose different interventions to support our loved ones? Right. Yeah, I, I totally hear that. And I think that, you know, we can't pick and choose what we're going to give people choice on. Like it's either you're all in or you're not. Yeah. Right. Because that really Um, seems like what's important to them is choice. They want choices and they want their individual differences to be Mm -hmm. acknowledged and accepted. And and so I hear that and I I love every bit of that. It's just that it's not translated in all areas. So it seems a bit hypocritical. And I don't know how to navigate this because, John, as you know, if you are neurotypical and you weigh in on some of these issues, it is not received very well amongst our community that has autism. And John, you, you know, this actually, you are really a a good advocate in nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. You are a strong believer that these conversations should not be happening without a self-advocate there representing individuals with disabilities. And I think that is so true, but how do we work towards a common good if we still have so much opposition on like, you know, the topic of therapy or no therapy conversion, you know, any effort to improve someone's abilities so that they can achieve all of their goals. Like where, how do we, do you have any ideas about how we train bridge that gap? So one of the things that I've done with other self-advocates is I'm a big fan of leadership books. And so one of the books that I give to a lot of self-advocates when I want them to to start thinking about other people and their perspectives is um, it's a book by Karen Armstrong, and it's called 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. And I learned about this from a friend, um, Skylar Oberst, who was with the Interfaith Council. And I read that book, and it just completely changed how I thought in several different aspects. And I think that a lot of self-advocates are so used to asking for compassion and accommodation from other people that they haven't been used to giving it. And I know it's really shitty to say that, but you know, it's, it's, um, it's true. You know what? That is really powerful, John. Cause I had never, I had never heard someone explain, you know, some of like why, why you think we have a struggle in this. So that is really thought provoking. And I never actually thought of it from that perspective. And now does this actually talk about that in this book then? It, it doesn't. Um, okay. I think that for me in this book, it helped me just kind of open my eyes to the perspective of other people, have conversations with people that I disagree with. Another book that I think is one of my favorites is I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. The ladies, who, who, the ladies who wrote it um, run a podcast called Pantsuit Politics. 
They talk about how to have different discussions with people across the political spectrum. And that book has just been incredibly helpful of me, like centering um, outside of all the work that I do in the disability community. I'm also vice chair of the Spokane Democrats. And so when I served as chair at the Human Rights Commission, I had to listen to everyone, including some conservatives that I just did not agree with. And there, you know, they there were people who came up to City Hall and had meetings with me with guns on their belt and talked about very, very heated issues. And you know, it's just about like centering ourselves to being able to hear someone try to validate them, but also say, this is how I feel. And I I don't think that a lot of people with disabilities have had to do that. Again, it's that that piece where people have always been caring for them. They've always been listening to them and their needs, that it's really hard for people with disabilities to see things from another perspective. And I hate that because it sounds like, I hate saying that because it, it, it does sound kind of like a put down on my people, but I found that not a lot of self-advocates are good at having those conversations and listening to both sides. It's just, oh, this is what I think. That's the end of it. Well, and respectful disagreement, you know, again, you know, I have to work in a world where I interface with people at each extreme end of Mm -hmm. the spectrum and how we live our life with loved ones with autism or as self-advocates, but also even just like politics. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing. Like Dr. King said, you know, we can disagree without being violently disagreeable. Correct. Now, here's a question, Katrina. So we're talking about building skills to be able to positively disagree with someone. Would this be an area that ABA could actually help work on if we were actually wanting to improve this area? Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic example of a social skill, which is a huge part of ABA. So teaching that how to communicate, how to get along with people, how to work with people. And yeah, that's a fantastic skill that ABA can touch on. But I also wanted to mention, so I worked in supported employment for a long time. And a lot of the skills that we use in teaching our individuals how to do jobs is very closely related to ABA. And it's not something I really thought about until I really got more involved in ABA. But I think there's so many fantastic skills that can come out of using ABA therapy and some of their methods. That is so true. Now, we were going to talk about the reward versus positive reinforcements. And before we hit the record button, one of the things that I say is, is that, you know, I got to be honest with you. It's like, in what world do we not all have natural positive reinforcers? Like in our work lives, we work hard. We stick with employers because of the reward of having extra pay, a longer paid vacation, 401ks, different things like that. And if you think that those are not positive reinforcers, you're wrong. So let's talk about the debate between a reward, because a lot of people associate ABA with, we're going to get you to do this skill and we're going to give you an M&M as your treat, right? Or a piece of candy or cracker, whatever it is that is that I hate to, again, use the analogy when we're talking about, you know, training, you know, like my puppy at home to you know, potty train, but that is what a lot of those preconceived ideas of what 
um, ABA is, is those rewards versus the concept of positive reinforcers that are natural things that really build your excitement around something and wanting to work really hard because you really like the rewards that you're getting from the hard work that you're putting into. So would you mind, John and Katrina, just talking a little bit about the difference between those? Okay. Yeah. So I was talking to my clinical, one of the clinical directors at SOAR about this yesterday. And the way she put it to me was that a reward doesn't necessarily have a behavior adjustment attached to it. So if you're getting, going to work and you get a paycheck, well, that paycheck might actually not be a positive reinforcement. Like if you hate your job and it doesn't change anything, you're still looking for other employment, that check isn't necessarily a positive reinforcement reinforcement, it's more of a reward. So it's really, that's the way she put it to me. And I think that's great. So it's really positive reinforcement is about changing behavior, whereas reward is something you receive that doesn't necessarily have a change in behavior attached to it. So I guess I would bring this back to how I was raised, like, as I grew up in a military family and my, you know, was very structured and my parents didn't have a lot of patience for a lot of the shit that came along with my disability. I, I know you're going to have to like bleep half of this out. I'm sorry. Oh, we don't <laughs> actually, we're an organic podcast. So we don't, okay. ever, I mean, I lovingly refer to myself as I'm a shit show most of the time. So that's <laughs> a theme that is constantly present throughout my podcast. So you're doing just fine, John. Okay. So Growing up in a military family and having parents who, you know, they were very hard on me. And so there were things that I did because they were how I contributed to the family. And I grew to not really like those things. We were towards my middle school um, career. We moved out close to the Pullman Highway off of Thorpe Road and a couple acres, some animals. You know, I'd be the one chopping the wood. All that stuff that kids don't really want to spend their time doing. Yeah, and I was very resentful. But as I got older, like I learned that, you know, my parents instilled a hard work ethic in me. Right. And I'm better for that. So I think that there are things that we do because we have to do them. And whether we do them in a way that is accommodated, which is the case for a lot of our folks, they still need to get done. And so I'll I'll go back to that um, neurodivergent teacher post is that she just doesn't use those reinforcers in her classroom because she's found that they get in the way of her students wanting to do the things that they need to do. They become dependent on that positive reinforcement or the reward that Without those things, they won't do what they're being asked to do. And so that's where I think it kind of turns into a double-edged sword. It is. Actually, we've done a podcast on this topic. We actually interviewed an executive function coach talking about the challenges. The long-term challenges for that is, is that it's difficult to motivate people in order to 
do the necessary things of life that are not necessarily fun or exciting, but they're just the necessary parts of having to do life in order to self-sustain us. And so part of the challenges with executive function is, is that, you know, they're working on helping individuals have better, know where their strengths are to help those strengths. So strengths will then help compensate for some of the areas of executive function that they really struggle or that are kind of tripping them up for being able to achieve the goals. And so a lot of her strategies is, you know, set a goal. Like, what is it that you want to accomplish? And then that's, um, they actually call it collaborative problem solving, where collaboratively you're talking about it and trying to figure out ways that you can help them through just, you know, being that, you know, the bouncing off ideas and helping them come to their own conclusions to be able to achieve some of the things that they want in life. And that is, you're absolutely right. That's the problem with, I'm not, I'm going to be honest with you. I have typical children and I have neurodivergent children. And I will tell you that it is a real struggle regardless of whether or not you have, you have a diagnosis of, of autism or, or, you know, dyslexia, it's trying to motivate all children to have to do those things that are just not fun about life is becoming increasingly more complicated, which is why I've done so many podcasts on executive function. And then what happens when you hit this wall where those rewards and positive reinforcements are no longer they're actually what's holding us back well and i would say that i get the line from parents quite a bit like you don't really seem like you have autism or any challenges because of what you do every day but i would say to those parents is that i really do struggle with executive functioning like if People just recorded me sitting in front of my computer every day. I'm like working on one Word document. I get an email. I go look at it. And then I immediately forget what I was doing. I'm not very organized. Um, Katrina has to hound me a lot of the times for things that I need to be doing for people first. And so those of us who don't show our disability or our autism, like you don't see that. It's there and we really do struggle. And I think that I, I would say that as a, as an autistic, it's frustrating to me when when people don't understand that while I present well, and we could go on a whole podcast about this, but masking is a thing and it's very draining. Like oh, I feel like I've had been to a do podcast that much. topic we've touched on, John. So yeah. we should actually put that on our list of things to talk about in the future. Cause I'd love to get yeah. self-advocates perspective because we did it from an executive function coach yeah. and what the long-term ramifications for constantly having to mask. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, can I uh, just add to this? So yeah. John, I love you to death. And you are one that keeps making generalized statements of <laughs> autistic people. And, um, and I think it's important to note that people without diagnosed disabilities struggle with those things too. So I've been told that I probably have ADHD. I can't focus for very long. Like my brain's always all over the place and I am very put together. So in the same sense where I mask I mask my depression. I mask my ADHD because I make so many lists. So I think it's, you kind of have to be careful about people with autism deal with this. People with disabilities deal with this. You guys would Everyone deals with these things. Yeah. However, it's harder for individuals who are on the spectrum or have, have disabilities. Um, And it really impacts our mental health. Like my mental health is already bad. Like 
And that's just related to my disabilities, but all the things that I have to do so that you don't see that I have a disability and I'm struggling, that is so draining on a person's mental health. It is exhausting. My son, Caleb, hates it when people say, well, you don't look autistic. And he says, what what does that look like? Because he's like, I mean, he doesn't even know. When people say that, he's like, well, what does autistic look like? Because he's thinking very literally. So I can completely relate to what you're saying in that regard. I didn't actually answer the question. I'm going to go to go ahead and kind of circle back to kind of final thoughts. But one of the things as a parent of children with autism that I find the most frustrating is, is that I, I very much pride myself on being a person that can see things from a lot of different perspectives and I can support any family or self-advocate in their decisions. What I really struggle with is, is that the inability or unwillingness to see things from other people's perspective or have compassion and empathy to understand that what works for one person or works for them cannot be effective and supportive of all individuals on the spectrum. And so it's really hard for me. And I even struggle a little bit, John, with the nothing about us without us because you know like for cooper he doesn't have a voice so if we if we utilize that concept then how fair is that because cooper doesn't have a voice so his only voice is the fact that his loved ones are passionately supportive of him and we want to advocate and be as supportive as possible so that we can build a better tomorrow and so that's where it's i i really struggle with some of this and so the same concept when we're talking about aba is is that when we have self-advocates that are attacking us because we We are an organization that does believe that ABA should be a therapy intervention that is available for families to utilize for their loved ones. Um, It really hurts my feelings that there's a group of people within this community that have autism themselves that would deny Cooper a therapy intervention that really without that, we would still be dealing with. I mean, we're still, we're still struggling with toileting. We're still struggling with um, minimizing self-injurious behaviors. And so to sit there and say, you know, ABA is just horrible. It just, it really is, is sad and, and hurtful because you're basically then it, you are wanting to make a decision that impacts a lot of people who don't have the voice to be able to communicate their needs and wants. And even again, for Cooper, his, his motivator in all of this is personal choice. While be it, he is, he is very, he's very impacted by his autism and where he really gets jazzed is when he gets to make personal choices about even taking a break. I want a break now versus a break later. I want a five minute break or I want a 20 minute break. I want a cheese as a snack or I want a piece of pocket. Those are all important choices for him. And that is naturally motivating for Cooper because it gives him the choice and the power to make decisions for himself. Even though, you know, Cooper... I'm talking about you, buddy. You want to come and say, yeah, word like, yeah, he's laughing. So I'm guessing I must be like, I'm representing him well, because he's giggling behind me and, and clicking. So I'm, I'm guessing I'm getting the, yeah, go, go. But that's where it's really hard for me because it's not fair that then we're criticized and we're called martyr parents, you know, and, and it's just, I, and I appreciate, John, that you come to the defense of a lot of us families because you are, you know, you have very strong opinions about some things. And again, John and I, you and I don't agree on all things in our autism community because, you know, again, the nothing about us, I love the concept. I just wish that how does Cooper then get that voice 
if, you know, he doesn't have family or advocates that can, you know, try and advocate for him. So, you know, but John, I have a a lot of respect for you because you are one of the self-advocates that will look at it, sit with it for a little bit. And I appreciate that. So I just want you to know, I appreciate the fact that you do take the time. And when you feel like you're wrong or you've come to a different place, you're very public about the fact that your eyes have been open to a different way of thinking. And I think that's really good to model to people in your community that it's okay to be wrong, right? So I, I, I think a couple of things I would say, and I've been using this with self-advocates who oppose ABA, right? When you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. It's a spectrum. What works for you may not work for someone else with autism. I also, I feel your pain. And I hate that a lot of self-advocates who oppose ABA, they don't think about the effects of their words and their actions and what that is going to do to some poor family who is either benefiting from the service or is making the choice to think about ABA. You know, again, self-advocates have zero, zero grounds to tell families about any services that they should be receiving. And I wish that they would understand that. I've spent a lot of time trying to to drill that. I I think a really old example uh, uh, that's not related to ABA is I got a call from a mom who had been yelled at by a People First Washington staff member a few years ago for placing her child out at Lakeland. And I called that staff member and I said, I never want to get a phone call like that again. We don't support institutions. You have no idea, no idea that family circumstances that led them to make that decision. And until you're a parent, you will never know. I think it's important to note too is, is are those people going out to Lakeland and sitting with those individuals that Lakeland is their home to see the joy and the comfort and that sense of community that they have at Lakeland too, because it's easy to make some of those assumptions. Cause I'm with you, John, I have families who I work with who have loved ones that are at Lakeland, they're older residents. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing too, is, is that from their perspective, it's like, you know what you should, before you make those statements, you need to come out there and experience Mm -hmm. and see their community and that sense of joy and you know community that they have you want a sip of my coffee sip of my coffee oh he said sip of my coffee so we're gonna <laughs> i i've been out to lakeland several times and i've talked with many of the 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 families oh you lost your coffee um i've talked with many of the families who who have sons and daughters out there and i think that from an advocate's perspective, like I'm always going to say, I don't support congregate facilities. And that's the thing that we've been having with self-advocates now. Like, okay, you want to close our state institutions? Where are folks going to go, right? Supported living, residential placements in our community are not there. Families can't even find independent caregivers to work in their homes. How are we going to care for all these individuals that are going to be coming out? And there's well, about a point. That is a point. think Cooper is at work with me today. Yeah. We don't have any caregivers for Cooper yeah. in summertime, so he's not in school. So you're absolutely right. Those are very good. So if we, if we made that decision today, about 900 people statewide would be out of a home. And there would be 
no provider capacity within the state for them to go to. And so it's just, again, bringing it back to that perspective of, okay, we may oppose this, but thinking about the other side of where do folks go? What, what is a respectful timeline? And how are we going to make sure that individuals and families have their needs met? Yeah. And moving forward, we have goals. We, we as yeah. a community, we want better housing opportunities that are very inclusive. But, you know, again, you know, you've met one person with autism. Um, and so, again, what is an appropriate living environment for one person with autism it's is kind of like totally right. different for another right. person. Yeah. And so we have to be supportive and provide lots of different opportunities that make sense um, and support the individual needs of all of our individuals that have, you know, disabilities not just autism. So Katrina, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up this? This has been a fantastic podcast. I really appreciate you guys coming on and being willing to talk about this because this is very controversial stuff right here. And so I'm sure we're going to get lots of, um, you know, feedback. I'm sure very positive, but also there will be some adversarial feedback too. So I I appreciate that you two are putting yourself out there and and knowing that you're going to get some criticism. But Katrina, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah. So while John was talking, I was definitely thinking about the fact that it's important to, yeah, be the whole idea of being individualized. So someone, John, in John's case, he reads books and he learns that way. I cannot. So as I shared, I can't focus long enough to get through one page of a book. So it's really, really hard for me to learn that way. And so I think it's really important when we're trying to educate people with disabilities about ABA and other people as well is, yeah, making sure we understand what their learning style is. Because, yeah, I've been on a lot of those calls with people first about, you know, shut them down, close institutions. But there's not really a okay, great. We want this. Everyone's behind it, but how, where are those people going to go? And I think that we're just having the same conversations that are shut them down, shut them down, shut them down. And so I think it's important to find how people learn and really try and educate them. But yeah, a big part of that is being open-minded with ABA, with anything, with Black Lives Matter, like any movement, you are going to have to be open-minded. It doesn't matter what your learning style is. If you're not willing to learn, you're not going to get anywhere. So yeah, yeah. that is so true. And that's part of the struggle working in this community is, is that again, we support the pendulum ends of the spectrum that, you know, I've racked my brain. I've talked to a lot of self-advocates. How can we help individuals? They have to be able to start seeing some elements of these discussions from a different perspective and that they would actually be hurting people in their own community by, you know, continuing the arguments on different things. I really wish, so my goal, in fact, I have mentioned this to Sydney, one of our self-advocates, um, Taylor GW, who's been a podcast guest. I have, I've interviewed a lot of self-advocates and actually I will tell you that my self-advocate podcasts are some of our highest rated podcasts of our entire library by far. Put me down <laughs> for once. Yes, exactly. Um, The thing that's interesting about this is I'm like, I wish, you know, because, you know, there's the negativity about the color blue 
thanks to the Autism Speaks and some real negative connotations and feelings towards Autism Speaks. And I can understand and I can respect some of those passionate feelings and triggers about that. Our puzzle piece is blue. The puzzle piece, actually, I get a lot, I get a lot of hate mail about my logo and the fact that it's blue. I will tell you that the puzzle piece is very special to me because again, I don't think of it as a missing piece. Like that never crossed my mind. I liked the puzzle piece in the sense that we're all together. We're stronger together. When you put every person has a, you know, like we all fit together to create this beautiful concept of like a puzzle. We all come together to make this beautiful community and we all link together and we're very strong. Once you link a puzzle piece, like it is a very strong connection. And that's really kind of that goal and that connection of the puzzle piece. And I love the color blue because my son, Isaac, who passed away, had the most beautiful blue eyes. And so people have said for a long time, oh, you know, I hate your puzzle piece. I hate the color blue. And it's really difficult for me because those are things that I associate with my son. And um, so I'm not willing to move away from those things because they're important to me, but there's the concept of the red instead, the red color, the infinity loop, which I love the infinity loop too. I think that's a very powerful symbol. And so um, I always say, it's like, why can't we just be a community of purple where we take red and we take the blue and we come together and we're purple. We're a purple group because we can start understanding that like there's a place for red, there's a place for gold, there's a place for blue. And that, you know, again, um, kind of like um, Katrina, we're doing this via zoom and you have your pronouns, she, her. And I kind of think to myself too, like, why don't we do this when it comes to like Caleb, he doesn't like being called autistic. So he could put Caleb people first language, or, you know what I'm saying? Because he, that's really important to him and it just rubs him the wrong way. And so I'm really hoping like through doing some of these podcasts and you guys being willing to come on and be vulnerable and, you know, just be very honest about, you know, some of these topics that perhaps somebody's going to listen to this and just be like, wow, John Lemus. I love John Lemus. And you're modeling really healthy strategies for getting people to perhaps see things from another perspective. When we interviewed GW, we talked about in our world, you know, he was talking about, he supports blue and red, by the way, he is very, um, he is, he's like you, he very much can see things from different perspectives and I love him for it. And one of the things we talked about was how he wishes that it's just autism. Why is it like high, you know, high functioning autism or severe autism? And I like just pointed out in the podcast, I said, okay, so GW, you know, both of my children, you know, Caleb, cause you've met him and you've done social things. You've talked to him. Caleb loves GW. He's also, spent a lot of time with um, Cooper at an event. And so if I was to tell you, okay, you're putting on an event and I tell you, okay, I'm bringing my, um, one of my sons with autism, but I don't give you any qualifying language, but I have the expectation that you're going to do everything that you can to help my child be supported and successful at this event. Do you feel like it would be important for you to know, like, a qualifying term in order to understand the needs that my child will need when they, because it's going to be different if I bring Caleb versus Cooper. And so he was just like, you know, I never actually thought about it like that, but you know what, like in certain contexts, you're right. Like there is, you know, for me, it's really hard and I get defensive because when I hear that, I want to live in a world where I don't have to provide qualifying information because it doesn't matter. No matter which child I bring, we have this inclusive community that's um, supportive and have accommodations that we're doing naturally without having to even be asked. But that's not the world that we live in yet. Mm -hmm. And so it really is hurtful for me too, because I use that language not to be a martyr parent. 
I provide that language because I have had too many situations as a parent where I have taken my kids to something and we have failed miserably or they had a very adverse reaction because there wasn't more dialogue about their needs and some of that qualifying language that would help people to understand like our family and what we're going to need when we come to engage this community event or whatever activity it might be. And I loved GW because he's like, I never thought about it like that. That is really like something that I really need to put some thought into. And so I was just like, thank you. I just felt very listened to in that moment. And John, you're one of those people too, where I've told you early on, John, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to F this up a time or two where I'm going to say something. And then you're going to come back to me and you're going to say, Hey, Holly, I didn't like how that like happened or whatnot. And I said, you know, I just want, you know, you to tell me about it and just know that I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I don't know. And so I need to be educated because again, I'm wearing the hat that I am an autism parent and advocate for our disability community, but I don't have autism. So that's why I want to be really sensitive. And I think John, you've been very kind to me. You have pointed things out. You have held me accountable for certain things. But I appreciate that where I just wish we could get we could just get a little bit more of that where we can help direct some of these conversations, help us to see things from a different perspective, but not be so mean. I mean, if I'm being honest, I feel like self-advocates are like really uh, like and I've had experience with this this weekend. Like there is so much backbiting and just general meanness within the self-advocacy community. Like, and it's so crazy because we spend so much time on all this damn drama and it's like distracting us from the things that we really should be doing. Right. John, that is so true. It becomes distracting when when there is dissension in our own community. I feel like everybody else looks at. So for an example, do you know, John, one of the things I was really proud of is, is that I was an alpha Z Delta at EWU. Now, granted, I graduated back in the nineties. So I'm like not too far from one of the, my, um, sorority, like my friends, my peer group were actually the founders of the Epsilon Zeta chapter at Alpha Z Delta. That's how old I am. But with that being said, after I graduated, actually it was after Isaac passed away, I joined my sorority because our philanthropy at the time was choose children. And I loved kids and I just, it was very broad in context, loved it. So then after Isaac passed away, our national fraternity decided to change our philanthropy to Autism Speaks. Now, I would be the first one to say that I was a little miffed about it because I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Autism Speaks for not a lot of the garbage that's out there, but just like for personal reasons, because a lot of funding goes to them, but they don't really do much to help us here in Spokane. So what are you doing for my family is here in Spokane? So that's really my big rough. But do you know that just in the last two months, our national fraternity decided that they were going to step away from Autism Speaks because we were too polarizing within our own community. And that became too controversial that the national, so all this money that was being raised in the interest of autism, they decided they're walking away from autism and they're going to actually choose a different philanthropy because of all the controversy, controversy and dissension within our own community. And I was just so, I have to be honest, I wasn't surprised because when you're looking at it, we are very polarized. And when you're talking about a PR nightmare, Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, from a national organization, that kind of is, but it made me so sad because I'm like, oh my gosh, like words getting out that we're kind of, we're, we're like fighting ourselves. And that just makes me really sad because yeah. we can't, 
you know, you know, John, I know you're a big believer in collaboration and, you know, because we have a stronger voice and it just really made me, I was very bummed by that, but I can't really argue that that's not what's going on. So, so John, I hope that you'll come back and join me again on another podcast. We can talk about things that you and I don't agree on. If you would like, I'm sure there's still things that we can find that we don't agree on. (laughs) Right. And Katrina, um, you are going to be joining me in the next few weeks. We're going to be podcasting a little bit more about ABA and specifically, uh, SOAR behavioral services, because that is definitely a conversation that I know our families are interested in talking about. I feel like we covered everything. Does anybody have any other final thoughts that I might've missed when I was being our host today? Um, I guess as um, just to give some final thoughts, I would just really like to say to the parents out there that you're doing an amazing job and you should never let the angry autism mob. That's, that's what I, that's what I'm calling now. They don't like it, but whatever it's what it feels you like should now. never let the angry autism mob make you feel like you're not yeah over the past year I was engaged and my partner had a 22 year old with significant autism and from that experience I learned so much and I was texting all of my parent friends and I'm like I get it now yeah like I get it You should never, ever let the self-advocacy community make you feel downtrodden as a parent. I appreciate Um, that, John. That actually means a lot. I I know I speak for a lot of parents that that means a lot coming from you. Yeah, I think that families are just trying to do the best they can with what they have. And I think that, you know, the angry autism mob needs to understand that. And you know, the same grace and compassion that they're asking from from the whole community, they need to be willing to give to others. Mm-hmm. You know, I agree. Now, here's one quick question. And I don't know if you even have an answer to it, but I get asked this question a lot and I don't really have a good answer for the families. But, you know, the fear is, is that this group of the angry autism mob that you're talking about of self-advocates that are angry, is this a growing population of people or do you feel that it's actually a relatively same size group or whatnot, or a small a group that's shrinking because, um, you know, and I try to tell families that from my perspective, I don't feel like it's a grow a hugely growing movement of people. I think the reason why it feels like they are is, is that they are very active in social media platforms. And so that makes it seem they can be in so many different places. And of course I get angry emails a lot. I get lots of ugly comments on Facebook. You know, we've had to even go so far as to block some people because it just feels very harassing. And so my feeling is, is that I'm trying to reassure my families that I don't, I don't, in my heart, I don't feel like it's a growing population of people other than it just seems as though they are a huge group of people because of social media outlets. And so I'm just curious about your perspective on that, John. I would say that I think it is a growing group of people. I think that, um, well, and let me back up a minute. Like the one, the one thing I mentioned and I've, um, started referring to this and talked about it on Bobby A. There are self-advocates who have had some really bad experiences and it's important for us to validate those experiences. And I apologize if I didn't make it clear throughout the podcast that that's my belief is that we should validate those experiences, but also say, this is where we're at. 
like things are different now. So you uh, mentioned just kind of that mob, the angry autism mob. And I do think it's growing. I think ASAN and other organizations are expanding their reach and things are going to get worse. And so what I tell parents and providers, stay off the autism dark web. Don't go down that rabbit hole because as soon as you do, you can't get back out. And it's just, there's a, so much misinformation. There's a lot of personal Again, there's a lot of personal experiences that have been bad, and we need to validate those. But at the same time, it's not where we're at. It's just it's not. If if people were still using Lobot's methods today, they would lose their licenses. Like, that's it. So we know that that's not happening. There are people in King County keep telling me it is happening. I've never seen it. And until I see it, I'm not going to get behind that rhetoric. So I think it's done more, uh, I think, also in the open, too, where and part of it is really parent provide like you're wanting providers are wanting parents to understand the process and how to support them so that you're carrying over that consistency at home. So I don't you know, like therapy isn't being done behind closed doors. Right, right. Every single well, day, and, that's not the nature of what it is. So, well, and the last thing that I would say to parents is instead of looking at the internet, make those connections with parents at the school. Like, that's how you're going to find out what services are available, what therapies have worked for other kids. That's that's where you're going to make those connections. Um, but just beware of the autism dark web and falling down that rabbit hole. There's a lot there. There's a lot of personal experiences from self-advocates who have really struggled. But there's also a lot of misinformation and a lot of personal opinions that may not be grounded in fact. I was going to say I disagree. So <laughs> um, I think that it's not growing or shrinking. I'd see it staying the same. I think I think we're making a lot of great progress in the infinity loop and just in these conversations that are happening. And as you were talking about pronouns, yeah, that was my thought too. Is like, I actually love the pronouns because I think Mm -hmm. it gets people to stop and think. And I think that's really important when referring to people with disabilities is just need that extra second to think before you speak. But I actually don't see them growing. I see a lot of the same very outspoken self-advocates at the table. We're not getting new self-advocates. And I see that as we're getting away from institutions, we're getting away from segregated classrooms. So it makes me help like super hopeful that in the future, yeah, there won't be this huge clash that, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I see, I see the progress. I might be I more optimistic. Just say that, Katrina, because here's what I think too is is that the age range of the those that are very um against ABA, they're frankly, they're older um in age because they experienced ABA when it wasn't good. You're absolutely right. So when we're looking at those population now, with that being said, ABA is so different now that people's association with ABA is so different. Like, and so Caleb has very positive experiences with his therapy interventions. And he, he actually loves like when we like transition out of one service or he just really mourns the relationship that he's made with these therapy providers because they become like family, like a person that gets them. And so for Caleb too, is we have spent 
a lot of times working on a positive self-esteem. As I mentioned, growing up, I was in special education. I was different. I was weird. Things were hard for me. And so I had a very low self-esteem, which really negatively impacted the three, even through adulthood, because I just didn't try to apply myself because, you know, reading was hard. And so there was not support, proper supports in place. And so it wasn't until I started gaining some self-esteem and self-confidence that I was just thinking to myself, self, like you're pretty awesome, but we're doing it different with our kids. We're really reinforcing through school, social, emotional learning, you know, positive behavior, ABA therapy interventions that, you know, inclusion work that we're creating in our community, um, talking about language and how, you know, people's personal preferences. I think it's um, increasing people's self-esteem. And when you feel good about yourself, you're more confident. And also, so you're kind of changing some of those stigmas associated. So I'm hopeful with you, Katrina, that part of why we're not going to continue to see this group of people grow is, is that there's just so much more acceptance and awareness and engagement and just conversations about some of these things and individual differences are okay and great and should be celebrated. And so I'm hoping I'm keeping my fingers crossed, like, cause I'm with you, John, I think when you start getting into that dark web and people start polluting their head, cause I see this all the time, even just in politics, you know, people that I've known for so long were, you know, really were democratic in viewpoint, then all of a sudden they get to a certain point in their age. And they're just, you know, depending on what news channel that they're getting their information from all of a sudden are making these odd shifts. And so again, it's, you know, you start the doctor and that you're then, you know, um, you know, getting connected to, I think does impact, um, your perceptions. And so I, I think that's really good sound advice about staying away from that dark, web of information because it's not necessarily factually based, but we do have to honor and and acknowledge the fact that these people did have very bad experiences with early interventions that were deemed, you know, to be how we're going to fix a person with autism. And Caleb's podcast, we, I asked him, he actually found an article on his iPad when he, in his younger years, and it was talking about curing autism. And you want to talk about him being seriously upset as a child in elementary school. He was just like, how could they want to cure autism? I'm so awesome. Like, why would you want to take my autism away? Like, and so we had this conversation about like with, you know, the differences between Caleb and Cooper is different. And so again, you know, it's like I said, well, if you could help Caleb or Cooper be able to communicate so he doesn't have to hurt himself when he's frustrated, would you want to do that? He says, no, I think, you know, I think Cooper's just Cooper. And, you know, Caleb very much is accepting of individual differences. But I then asked him, I said, well, could you understand why John wishes that he could give Cooper a voice so that he could explain his needs and wants? And he says, well, I could see why a parent would do that. So, um, you know, again, I think that, you know, different perspectives we have to we have to listen to that and again you know Caleb was so offended about you know curing autism because like he's so great but I think that's just a testament to the good work that we're all doing as a community about the fact that like we're inclusive we don't mind accommodations and we in fact we love it like what do we all need in order to be successful and I think that we're getting there so thank you guys for joining me I know that this was kind of a long episode but there is just so much good content John we're going to go ahead and link those couple 
couple of books that you mentioned while we were podcasting so that we can put that in the show notes. So if you're listening and you're interested in some of the books, John, if you have any other books, because I do, I'm with Katrina. I know we're Facebook friends and I know that you are always referencing different books that you're using um, to learn leadership and just learning how to see things from different perspectives. Any of those resources that you feel like we should include for our listeners to be able to learn just like John and uh, grow and, and see things from a different perspective, we would love it. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism World. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.